Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstadt, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversation in Mose Surgery. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Glenn Goldman from the University of Vermont. Uh, Dr. Goldman is the professor and chief of dermatology as well as director of the uh, Mohs Surgery Fellowship at UVM. Thank you for joining me today, Glenn. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, at this time, you're also the ACMS president, and so I thought I'd give you a little bit more formal introduction. You can just tell me if I got everything correct based off of what I found online. You uh, received your medical degree from Weill Cornell. You did your dermatology residency at Yale, and then you did your fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Did I get that right? That is all. That's correct. And then you joined UVM in 1996. Yeah, I joined UVM in 1996, and I've been here ever since. So before we talk about the uh, ACMS and, and where it's going in the next year, I guess I'll ask more broadly, how has Mohs surgery and, and what we do changed since 1996? You know, I think that the, the two greatest changes I've seen in Mohs surgery are uh, relatively universal acceptance. You know, even in the late 90s, uh, the penetration of Mohs surgery was far lower than it is now. And the uh, response to Mohs surgery has really been remarkable over the last two decades, such that now the majority of difficult skin cancers are removed by Mohs surgeons. And the second is just the technical, technical advancement of Mohs surgery and Mohs surgeons, in that our younger trainees now have available to them a, a wide variety of techniques that we did not have, such as some of the uh, Mark One immunostains and um, also some augmented intelligence uh, that that we did not. Have. And I think that most surgeons have also become better at reconstruction and better at science and have included more of a multidisciplinary approach. So there have been many advancements uh, in most surgery over the last couple of decades. We're at a good place at this point in time in our ability to help people. We are treating more and more challenging lesions and also uh, removing and expertly repairing uh, small to modest lesions as well. I guess if we reflect back, um, I, I can't really expect the same 
foresight for for 24 years from from now but what do you think we'll be doing differently or or better in you know even four six or or ten years as it relates to our specialty i guess as i look to the future you know in, in terms of what we need to do we need to stay relevant uh, as a society as a college and we need to stay relevant as physicians and we are going to need to uh, change by graduating from only Mohs surgery to sort of a formal cutaneous oncology uh, organization. And uh, we're going to need to continue to work with other disciplines. Uh, there will be advances uh, in Mohs surgery that will involve, for example, the use of modified confocal microscopy, um, the use of artificial intelligence. Uh, these are things that I think are going to be uh, either employed within the next few years by a surgeon or they may be left behind. I think that we are, we're going to have, we're going to use those to our advantage and to our patient's advantage. Uh, we are, we're also probably going to have to develop some rigorous standards for our studies. A lot of other organizations do uh, multi-institutional research studies. That's been done in melanoma. And in dermatology and, and in Mohs surgery and dermatologic surgery, we have, we've, we've done a lot of individual uh, organizational studies, such as a study that comes out of the Mayo Clinic or out of the Cleveland Clinic. And more and more, I think that we need to go to a multi-institutional study and we're, we're we're going to be working on that. Uh, Chris Miller has some excellent ideas along those lines. Um, and then I think we also are going to have to continue to demonstrate our efficacy and efficiency. We know our own outcome excellence, but we need to be able to prove that to others. And we've got a good start in that in terms of using Mosaic. Um, but I think that, you know, the key to moving forward over the next four, six, ten years is to demonstrate to the public what we already know to be true, which is that we provide excellent skin cancer care, we provide it at a reasonable cost, and that we are thoughtful, ethical, and highly effective physicians. I want to talk a little bit more about um, Mosaic. I had the pleasure of talking with Sarah Aaron back in our um, third episode of the podcast in 2018. And, um, you know, fast forward to where we are now, we've got several uh, tens of thousands of, of cases uh, that have been included by uh, some of the active members that are entering into Mosaic. And I, I guess, where do you see the main utility? You're talking about the need for multi-center studies demonstrating our, our value um, where are we in the rollout of Mosaic to actually making that happen? I would say that we're in the nascent period, but that things are moving along well. And um, I think that we're still in an early phase, but a lot of data is available through Mosaic um, that is currently, you know, held uh, by the Mohs College. By Arbormetrics. I think that as we increase the number of people using Mosaic, we will get more robust data. 
and I think that we're moving very strongly in that direction under the auspices of Chris Baum and others. Uh, for example, we are likely to be able to integrate Epic with Mosaic within the next year or two. And that will really be a big win because it will take what is currently somewhat of a laborious task of curing data uh, and enabling us to capture that data. Um, if we can, for example, uh, demonstrate our recurrence rate, our utilization of antibiotics or lack thereof, our utilization of opiates or lack thereof, uh, our outcomes, and particularly our patient satisfaction, I think that we're going to be able to use this um, for great advocacy. And then, um, on the other hand, we're also going to be able to uh, enter data that enable us to do large cohort studies. Uh, and, and so this is something that I think is very exciting going forward. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's a fantastic uh, tool and certainly... Uh, for all those listening, if you haven't yet enrolled, um, please visit the website and, and get more information on how to do that. Uh, a little over a year ago, um, I guess a year and a half ago, we had Barry Leshen on when he was ACMS president. And, you know, while the technique has not changed since then, in many ways, the environment that we practice in uh, is completely different than two years ago. Um, nobody could have expected that, you know, the MOS meeting would have been canceled or uh, relayed to, to a virtual business meeting, uh, the impact of COVID. What have you felt for us as an organization the pandemic has, has meant for individuals as well as for the greater organization of the ACMS? Well, before I answer your question, I, I am interested going to just interject a little thing, which is that I learned a lot from Barry Lesher. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm kind of honored to get the opportunity to talk to you um, sort of in follow-up to Dr. Lesher's time, because I view him as a strong mentor to me. He taught me a lot about leadership and responsibility. Um, and so I feel that it my position as, as Secretary Treasurer and then Vice President and President was definitely augmented by the learning that he provided to me in the instruction As I look at what happened with COVID, you know, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat that and say that there's anything good that comes out of it. Uh, because there, it, there, there may be some things that we can take from it, but this has been a very challenging time for people. I mean, many of us have lost friends, family, colleagues through COVID. Uh, we've been pushed around, uh, beaten down, and there's no other way to say it. I mean, if you work in a, in a private practice, you've had the fear of losing your business. Uh, you may have gotten a loan. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty in figuring out what to do. Those are probably going to be audited in the future, so people need to be cautious with how that money is spent. Um, there was a fear of whether or not people could get PPE. Some people wanted to do Mohs surgery. Others felt that it was appropriate to just wait and hold off. Um, conflicting evidence and conflicting guidance 
work for an institution like I do, you know, they, they said you can't do Mohs surgery, and now they said you have to do more Mohs surgery to catch up. So I think that there's a lot of a lot of difficulty and adversity that people have faced. I personally have been very proud of watching people soldier through that and continue to act, help our patients in the face of adversity. I think that physicians have been remarkably tolerant of having their salaries lowered despite doing the same amount of work. I think that our uh, ability to move forward has been really remarkable. And there, there is one thing that is going to come out of this that it, that I think is is an improvement, which is the use of teledermatology. You read my mind there. And that may be an improvement for what? You read my mind there. Tell tell me about telemedicine in Mohs, because I've struggled and or thought about that in my institution. It's now an institutional goal where I am. Um, how how do you see it best being used in what is really a procedural subspecialty? It is a procedural subspecialty. And, you know, I there are two very well-defined uses for teledermatology, whether that is a Zoom visit or a video visit, or whether it's a uh, telemedicine phone visit, both of which are actually now paid. And, you know, there are going to be some issues with that because you know, how do you pay for those in the long run and maintain budget neutrality, all of those issues. But at the same time, it, it is beneficial to patients. And for, for many locations, including here, we have patients coming, you know, routinely from a fairly remote location. Those patients can now have their preoperative consultation done by telemedicine. Uh, it, it's a lot easier to do that than it used to be in the past. They can then do their post-operative visit by telemedicine. If they have a concern uh, in the middle of the night, because of the emergency, they can actually send a picture to my cell phone and get around the HIPAA rules. And to be honest, HIPAA needs to be modified because it's a silly law. And if a patient wants to send you a picture, they should be able to send you a picture. And if they accept the responsibility that someone else might see that picture, that's their decision. We're all big boys and girls here. And I think that that's something that uh, uh, people accept and patients are very grateful for. Uh, we now do a lot more uh, teledermatology for post-operative visits. Patients like that. Um, a lot of people have good smartphones, can take nice photographs and send a picture, and we're actually able to help um, so I think that that is going to have a long-lasting impact. Uh, it will save visits to dermatology uh, from patients who live two, three, four hours away and don't need to make the round trip. Um, so I think that there's a tremendous benefit to that. There may be even more of a benefit to general dermatology where Accutane follow-ups, acne follow-ups, dermatitis follow-ups can be done uh, either over the telephone or by video visit. But I do think for consultation and follow-up, it's actually quite remarkable uh, what we're able to do. I think that that will last um, in some form and that restrictions on the platform that we have to use will be relaxed. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've I've found it both as sort of synchronous video visits, telephone visits, and and asynchronous um, sort of store and forward uh, of of photographs from uh, healing wounds to be very helpful and uh, very time efficient, not just for me but also for the staff and uh, most importantly for the patients. The other side of of COVID um, is really that of um, oncology. Have you anecdotally in your practice found that a three-month delay, you're seeing bigger basal cells, deeper melanomas, or is it is it poor data to judge on? You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a statistical purist, so I would need to see a large study, which I think there will be at some point. Obviously, anecdotally, we have seen some squamous carcinomas that have really gotten out of hand. I've had to do several amputations of digits that waited for a long time. We have two patients who had squamous carcinomas diagnosed in late January who were not seen until June, and the squamous carcinoma on their scalp was through their calvarium uh, and inoperable. And those are, are things that we sometimes see anyway, but which seem to be more substantial. Um, I've also seen a tremendous number of horrible rashes because I do some general dermatology as well, uh, where people had been self-medicating and really suffering. So I, there obviously was delay in care. One of the things that I told our leadership at our institution is I will never stop seeing patients again for COVID. In other words, we are not going to stop seeing patients in person, even if there is a second wave. We will simply protect ourselves and protect the patients because there has been some adverse outcome and quite a bit of suffering. If not mortality, there's been a lot of morbidity. And I think that, you know, now that we know the epidemic a little bit more and physicians and also patients are a little bit less fearful, both are masked. And both are cautious. I think that we now provide care safely and effectively and probably will continue to do so. And certainly many of us are now practicing in environments where the virus is probably way more prevalent than it was when the initial um, shutdown of elective procedures happened in uh, March and early April. Outside of COVID, where do you see, and I should say COVID recovery, where do you see the main needs and priorities of the most college for the 2020 slash 2021 year? You know, one of the things just now the, the first six months of this year, my goal is allow people to stabilize in a hard year. You know, there every leader has ambitions and goals. Uh, the most college has needs. But we need to also recognize just a period of rest and recovery. That being said, a lot has been going on behind the scenes. So, you know, one of the needs this year was to extricate ourselves from what was a very large financial loss. And we were largely able to do that. And for those who are unfamiliar with EDI, uh, EDI is our organization that runs our executive management and they were extremely effective in assisting us in remodeling our contract with our hotel and venue in Nashville 
we'll be going back there, uh, but we were able to avoid a very large loss. Uh, we also uh, have uh, had an insurance settlement, which assisted us. So a lot of work went on in the background. Um, the needs for the ACMS this year are as follows. First, we need to plan for next year's meeting. Um, we haven't had a, we didn't have meeting this year, which was sorely missed. We need to continue educating our members and providing a means of social interaction. And there will be a meeting in Seattle next year. I will be there, regardless. If there's a one person there, it'll be me. I'm going. Uh, that being said, some people are not going to be able to go. So we're going to have to have a mixed meeting. We're fortunate in that other sister societies, such as the ASDS, are going to go ahead of us, and there is now a lot of ability to have meetings digitally and remotely or joint meetings. And so, under the direction of Ian Meyer and with the help of Susan Lathrop, who is a fantastic uh, EDI uh, assistant to us, and helps us with our educational efforts, we are going to move forward with that. And that's important because we have another major need, which is to educate our members so that we all pass the upcoming ABB board exam. And that examination is important. I recognize that there is ambivalence about the uh, examination in college, but, you know, the, the when the speed limit has been set, we're not going to argue with the policeman about it. We're going to follow through, and uh, we will provide the resources so that all of our members are able to pass the exam. So during the year, um, and you know, we've, we've put this out in the president's message, uh, monthly we are going to supply each and every one of our members with a question of the week, study guide that will be available uh, in a written uh, format, a course at the upcoming annual meeting, whether that is attended virtually or in person, and then a follow-up uh, refresher over the summer uh, as a pre-preparation. We need to recover our financial footing, and so we're going to expect that people will attend the meeting this year either remotely or in person. And then there are a few other areas that we need to work on. One of those is leadership, uh, and the other is diversity. And uh, I and others are committed to both of those. Um, you know, we have a wonderful opportunity for a leadership initiative this year. The foundation has uh, developed a course that, not really a Course, but a leadership initiative uh, where we're going to have three projects that will be officially recognized by the Mose College. And we are now taking applications for leadership mentorship. And uh, I, I think that this is a, a really a remarkable program. We have uh, an excellent consultant who will be assisting in this. And Matt Jelinek has done fantastic job of rolling this out. Uh, applications are already being accepted and reviewed. And, you know, it has been a goal of mine for some time to develop 
somewhat more of a diverse leadership in the Mohs Tower. And that's something that's going to take time. It does not happen overnight. But if you look at our history of leadership, as opposed to the makeup of our membership, uh, they don't 100% correlate with one another. And uh, it's a goal of ours to train and develop leadership among a more diverse group of individuals, and that's something that we uh, will work on not only through the leadership initiative, but also through a diversity task Excellent, and certainly the the ACMS Foundation has been just fascinating to to watch that grow, both um, in the public eye or amongst our members, and also uh, for me behind the scenes and. Uh, for those of you who are still not that familiar with it, there's a, a research grant application um, component to it, as well as a separate leadership development um, curriculum that members can apply to. And uh, a number of months ago, I had the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Jerry Brewer and uh, Dr. Jelinek on the podcast to talk about those two arms of the foundation. I encourage everyone to to hear them speak because they're both very inspiring and very passionate about their respective roles within the ACMS Foundation, um, as as are you, Glenn. So, um, yeah, I certainly encourage people to apply there, and it's a nice sort of lead-in. Being myself one of the uh, younger members of the ACMS, but even for those who who have come after me and the associate members, how do you recommend they get involved with the college? That's a good question. You know, I, we have a lot of members, we have a lot of members with wonderful ideas. If I were, you know, giving advice in an area like this is, is fraught with, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of, I did it this way, so this is how you ought to do it. But um, I think that that, you know, we have many opportunities. First thing is, to honestly, don't be in a rush. You know, your first years in practice are years in which you will have the opportunity to learn. But, you know, in your fellowship, you're, you're often very involved in research. And if you get into your first few years of practice, remember that this is a marathon. This is not a so you don't have to be right in the thick of things immediately after you get going. And if, uh, you know, my, my son, who is sort of an, you know, I, I don't need to step in a bad place here, but my son is sort of post-millennial. You know, and he once asked me, Dad, is there a way to, to start at the top and bypass all of the stuff that I have to go through? And I, I you know, I, being that he's my son, I said, no, <laughs> you know, you're, you're stuck. Um, but, you know, the first few years of your practice, just enjoy your practice. Um, it's your opportunity to get out, um, get your feet wet, establish a patient base, ensure that you're providing excellent care, go to the meeting, and enjoy what you have accomplished. After that time, I think that the following methods can really be very effective, first of which is, being creative and participating in research. 
that requires time. If you're at an institution or if you're working in private practice and have your own foundation or working for a large group, you will have the opportunity to participate in research. Once you've done some of your own work, volunteer to present at ACMS meetings, submit abstracts. Uh, you know, the, the excellence that you demonstrate will be recognized. People are on your side and will want to promote We always are looking for volunteers for committee membership. And that is an excellent way to get to know the Mohs College and grow as a young physician because we always need help. We need help with education. We need help with advocacy. We need help with mosaic. These are volunteer positions some of which require more time than others and some less. And they, they not only do they allow people to see who you are and what you're doing, but they enable you to develop mentors because you meet people who are more senior, who are eager to work with you. Um, and the last thing is to be patient and put in your time. You know, I remember being frustrated. I was like seven years out and you know, I got a couple presentations in at the Mo's meeting and nobody seemed to know who I was. And, um, and then, you know, I, I wrote a couple of papers and I talked to a few people. And the next thing I knew, I was lecturing more. And then I was able to get on a couple of committees. And then, you know, I, I thought it was kind of out of the blue, but it wasn't. And David Broadland asked if I would be the scientific director for the meeting. And I accepted that. And at that moment, I immediately got the experience of learning and learning at a fast rate of speed what the Mohs College was about. And then moving forward from that, whenever somebody asked me if I would do something, I said yes. And I think that, you know, if there's any advice that I can give that, that I would consider what I would say is non-millennial advice, it's if somebody asks you to do something, just say yes, whether you want to do it or not. And um, by doing that, I, I found that I had the opportunity to really move forward and, and learn from a large number of people. And then lastly, I would say is I would find a mentor, even if you are not in this leadership program. Having somebody who's been out for 5 to 10, 10 to 15 years who is a friend and a colleague is just a huge win. I had a number of those people in my career, um, one of whom was Len Zubo, very grateful for his training and for his support over the years. The others were some of my colleagues who were at the same stage as I. So, for example, Jonathan Cook has been a good friend of mine for many years, uh, and I've learned an enormous amount from him. Um, and then the other thing is that you can learn not only from members of the Mohs College, but also from people who are around you in your practice or your residency or fellowship. So fostering all of those relationships goes along. What made those mentors and mentorships valuable and rewarding? You know, the mentors and mentorships that I've had have improved me as a person. People have given me constructive criticism over the years that I've listened to. 
you know, I can be a little bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes, and people have told me that. And as I've aged, I've mellowed out. I, I still can bring it out once in a while, um, but and to you know, when I think it's useful. But I, but I also have learned, um, you know, respect, thoughtfulness, calmness uh, from those mentors, uh, and I've learned creativity. It, it, you know, it, it's funny because you think that people are born creative, and some are, and, um, but I don't think I was. I think that Len Zubo taught me creativity. And similarly with Jonathan Cook, and, and then emulation of what those people do is something that advances you. Um, and then the last thing is that, you know, Barry, for example, brought me to an entire Course on executive leadership. Uh, the entire Moe's EC went to a, a course called Exceptional Boards. And the Exceptional Boards program educated us on a number of issues, uh, not the least of which was delegation and respect. So uh, I've the older I get, the less dogmatic I am, and the more I ask other people what they want to do and what they feel is valuable. And then the goal as a leader is to enable them rather than to get the things that you're looking for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, very valuable and, and worthwhile advice. For those um, interested, any particular, you, you know, we can't all attend the executive leadership courses, but any particular reading or, or books that you found helpful along your, your road? You know, there, there is a short book, um, and I have to be honest, I've forgotten the authors, for which I apologize, but it's called The Truth About Leadership. It has 10 truths about leadership. It's, it's not one of these feel-goods, like, about how to be great or good to great or be a great this or whatever. It's just 10 truths about leadership. And um, it's, it's a popular book that, that I think gives you uh, steps of how to be reflective. Um, and, and, you know, part of it is recognizing, you know, not everybody's a great leader. And I don't know if I am a great leader. I, I try to improve that. Um, you know, I, I, one of the, uh, I mean, not not entirely my favorite president, but one I liked fairly well was Ronald Reagan. I liked his attitude, which was positive. And, you know, he noticed that the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He's the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. And I, I think that that's one of the uh, things I learned in that uh, book about the truth about leadership. Very nice. And thanks to uh, the marvels of Google, uh, that would be The Truth About Leadership by Barry Posner and James Cousins. Yeah. So uh, for anybody interested in reading that in the future. Well, Glenn, I know you're a, a busy man. Um, any other highlights of the ACMS projects, plans that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, we do have a few initiatives coming up in the fall. I think I'm going to try to fall back on an old initiative that we had years ago um, you know as we as everybody becomes board certified now we're gonna have to figure out how is the, the Mose College distinguishes itself and 
there's a very nice old, I mean, this is, you know, I was, I, I, I am a gray hair and I was, you know, 20 pounds lighter at the time, but there was a, uh, an old refrain um, that, that we developed for the Mose College, which was the experience you expect, the training you trust. And I, I think as a little branding, we may bring that back. We still own that. And, it, and it's something that I think, you know, is the training you trust, the experience you expect is something that reflects what the Mose College is. And, and I am going to work a little bit on developing an initiative for Center of Excellence, and it will be a virtual Center of Excellence. But those people who entered their data in Mosaic, those people who demonstrate excellence should be able to distinguish themselves. And, you know, penalizing people doesn't work. CMS tries to penalize people. And I, I don't think that that's an effective method of, of, of recognition. It, it, it doesn't, you know, give you the warm fuzzies, but being able to distinguish yourself by meeting variety of goals that are entered routinely and that don't require you to check off boxes um, are things that I think give people a, a sense of value. And, you know, the, the, the last thing I would say is, you know, I'm, I'm the last person in the world to do yoga or talk about mindfulness or any of those things. But, you know, as we all work, just recognize that the leadership of the Mose College understands that this is a difficult time. We recognize that people have needs, that they are suffering. Um, I mean, this is a hard time to be a physician. It's a hard time to be a provider. Um, I mean, it's a hard time in general, hopefully one that will be resolved within a period of months. We are on your side. We have a good advocacy team. And I haven't mentioned a lot in this podcast about advocacy, but it is ongoing and ever-present. And it goes on behind the scenes, sometimes thanklessly, rarely with a lot of fanfare, but we have a very strong team that works to protect all of us and ensure that what we do is valued, and that continues. So uh, be aware that there's a good team, there are a lot of excellent people working, and that we welcome the assistance of fresh, young ideas and minds to help us with what we're doing. I think that the future is what we will make of it. And I think that we have a, a strong position to move forward from. And, uh, you know, it's hard to be a leader during a time when there is a crisis in the country. Um, I want people to know that if they need our help, please reach out and we'll do what we can to help them. Wonderful. I'm sure uh, our listeners will appreciate hearing that. And um, I do want to. I do want to bring the advocacy efforts of the Most College more to the forefront in a future podcast. So, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, I do want to note that in collaboration with the ACMS Social Media Committee, uh, I'm excited to announce that we'll be starting a new podcast segment titled Reconstructive Masters in the coming weeks. Uh, in addition to the conventional podcast, once a month, I'll invite an expert to discuss a surgical defect of mine that I've posted on patient um, that I've posted with patient permission on the social media channels 
And hopefully I'll be able to chat with uh, Dr. Goldman and others in the future about pearls for the successful reconstruction. So thanks again for your... Thank you so very much for having me. Thank you to everyone who's uh, making this very special. Thank you, and I hope uh, our listeners will join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery.